0: Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau, the podcast
1: that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. We're going to be doing a high level overview of social media for wineries and brands.
0: So, when we say social media, being the social media noob that Robert always calls me, social, I guess, being part that's more interactive, getting to know, other people in the world, and actually media, which is content and advertising and generating that media that is consumed by people. So when we think about all the different social platforms out there, I guess I think of ones that are the very general social platforms and the very wine-specific ones. For wine,
1: what do you think the best
0: general ones are, Robert?
1: Well, I'm going to say Instagram because I think it's the best for building and creating a community around a specific theme I mean, I think the key here with with something like Instagram is that it allows people to come together around a common topic or multiple topics. So if you're an end user and you're interested in painting and wine and cooking, you can find all of those things and follow brands or influencers. Related to each of those things, and get more content. I think part of the, what makes this platform so powerful is that they allow you to search hashtags and find content that relates to the things that you're looking for. As well as, it has a pretty powerful advertising, by the way, of Facebook. And then the the user demographic here is slightly younger than a lot of the other platforms. And having all that means that people are spending more and more time on their phone. And Instagram is one of the main growing platforms. And if you look at kind of like Facebook's revenue, it's quickly gaining traction in terms of percentage of revenue coming from Instagram versus the rest of Facebook. And it's also a very integrated global audience because that auto-translation is really powerful. So I have like 13% of my following is from Italy for some reason. I guess I just drink a lot of Italian wines.
0: (laughs) Well, I was going to say, is Instagram your number
1: one pick mostly because you have the most success on it and it's there? No, no. I started originally with YouTube to be honest. And I think Facebook is, I think of Facebook as people I already know. And they've done a lot of work in making Facebook groups really, really powerful. And it's a great way to have a closed gated community of people and delivering content to them, whether it's live streams or posts and things like that. And I think that that's like the new version of a Reddit behind closed doors. And I think that you have to find them and it doesn't have that organic reach that something like an Instagram has.
0: Well, so that's interesting, especially as we think about how it applies to the wine industry, where Often, at least for higher-end wines, the customer tends to be older, and for lower-end wines, it might be a bit younger. So how do we think of the difference between Facebook and Instagram between those? Should people targeting an older customer base go to Facebook and Instagram, or do you think it's still Instagram for all audiences?
1: For sure, if you're targeting an older demographic, Facebook is more relevant and just the nature of people even scrolling through will be a little bit slower if they're older versus younger people who kind of like swipe through things really quickly and not necessarily read all the content. So I think the, if you're doing videos and stuff on Facebook, making sure you have subtitles so that people are, if they're not clicking on the audio, will catch it and things like that. And Facebook's bringing over a lot of the functionality like stories and things like that into Facebook, so that they, you know, in which they essentially stole from Snapchat anyway. So the demographic is older, but Instagram is slowly aging up. So Instagram is not just for millennials. It's growing every day in terms of which user group. The area where it's not growing is the super young group. And those are people going on to things like TikTok. And then if we want to talk about Twitter, I think Twitter is really kind of like, I think of it like as the water cooler breaking news, like things that are trending and happening. So when you hear a lot of things around politics or recent events, I think Twitter is very, very powerful. And if you want to jump onto those, those are important. I also don't think it forms the best communities. I, if a, a lot of times I think of Twitter as toxic. So it's really hard to curate mm. your content and control the brand messaging.
0: I don't know the full details, but I remember reading an article that said Kathy Corazon loves social media and it sort of saved her business, she said, and part of that being Twitter. The other example I know is Jim Dwayne of the Inside Winemaking Podcast has said for his following Instagram's what he's found worked really well. And Twitter, he never really got traction, not so much.
1: Yeah, so I think it depends on when you got into the social media game because these things have ebbed and flowed over time. So Twitter was very powerful because you were on your phone and Facebook was slower to get onto the phone. And so that was, you know, taking that spot. But then as These audiences broaden. Instagram is very much focused on media. It's content first. It was a photo sharing site first and foremost, right? So it is a visual platform and Twitter is not Twitter. I mean, you can do it now. You can do videos and you can do photos and memes and things like that. But the main hook for Twitter is text and sharing things and retweeting things and that kind of like spin. And that's not necessarily the same thing that you're seeing on Instagram. Like there are ways to post and repost things on both Facebook and Instagram, but there's also as a brand, a way to control that. So you don't allow that as often.
0: And you talked about getting a start in YouTube. How does wineries play or wine brands play with that?
1: yeah I mean it's possible like definitely there if you have strong video content in the right aspect ratio, you know YouTube's a great place it takes a while to build up it does have very powerful live streaming technology now just like Facebook does So I think the big thing is that there are a lot of people watching content, but it's a lot of the content that're looking for is people are searching for something and so where I think YouTube is the most powerful from an advertising perspective is if you're searching for something, if they're searching for wine related stuff that you on Google and then they go into YouTube that you can use those pre-roll ads to jump in there and advertise. I think in terms of making good YouTube content, the virality there, it's more dialed in because it's based on a lot of the stuff that Google Ads is doing. So there's a lot more science behind it versus like a hashtag system, which is kind of rudimentary. Like there's a lot of things that you need to do correctly in order to grow that following. And then the question is like, how do you then naturally link out of that? YouTube doesn't have great ways of allowing you to Direct connect to outside of the platform, and so I think that's one of the areas that is not as powerful. Not to say that there aren't ways to do it from the main creator pages, but in terms of from directly from the video, it's harder and harder than it is on some of the other platforms.
0: So, when you mean direct connect, just so I understand, being the noob, so is that like if you want them to click on something to go to your site to whether it's sign up for the mailing list or buy some right. wine or something like that, it's much harder to do in YouTube versus
1: others. Yes, it's not as straightforward on how to do that. And I would say that the um, also the quality bar that you need to play in YouTube is considerably higher because that content's going to stay there. So that content's going to stay up and it's searchable and things like that. And not that the Instagram or Facebook content isn't, but it is much more of the moment. It's about continually refreshing that pool of content. And so I still have people who go back and look at my old YouTube videos and comment and I'll still you know I'll check in on it once a week. And I do want to get back into for longer form content. I actually think that so a lot of stuff that I'm doing on Instagram in terms of these live streams I'd like to be my original goal before the world kind of got locked down. I you know, my goal was to do winemaker interviews and put that into like a long form 30, 40 minutes, and really get in depth with winemakers and talk about their wines and their brand and things like that and put that into YouTube and that's something that could be archived and I could use for later. But it now turns out that I've done that now on Instagram. and just the aspect ratios doesn't work for me to translate it necessarily over to YouTube. But that's still my future goal.
0: And I've heard of this TikTok thing? I don't
1: actually know what it is. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, TikTok is it started as Musical.ly and then was bought by a Chinese company and it was rebranded TikTok. And they have a very strong social media presence in China, but all over the world, it is you know, very much video-focused, vertical video-focused, uh, a lot of quirky things, but a lot of celebrities are really jumping into this game. And so there's a younger demographic. So Is you
0: know, it music videos? Uh, Everyone uh, I've seen are people dancing to music.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of it, and there's, it's, it's basically, think of it like funny little videos, blue reels. There, I mean, you could have other content in there as well, but it's very lighthearted, and you're kind of clicking on them. And one of the things I think is most powerful about it is that it's not surfacing content to you based on who you follow or what you like. It's based on what you actually watch. Hmm.
0: So it's, okay. the algorithm is
1: considerably different. Than and you don't stuff search like, like YouTube. You can, but it's, it's meant to be okay. kind of like just to click through it. It's more, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost more like, like a
0: blend of YouTube and Instagram.
1: Yeah, I guess you could call it something like that, but much more music focused. And it's, there's like, you're all, most people who are watching TikTok have the volume on where that isn't, isn't necessarily the case with Instagram or Facebook. TikTok is massive. I mean, TikTok's the next thing. If you're not on TikTok, like right now, it may not match the demographic for the wine industry, but eventually that demographic will age up and it should be a place. So you should stick your claim on that real estate there. Just
0: to be clear, when you're saying real estate for TikTok, you mean like a username?
1: Yeah, I mean, with all these things, you kind of want to have a consistency in terms of username across all those platforms when possible. Obviously, you have to figure out how quickly you are to those before you can claim something. But yeah, that's what I'm saying by real estate.
0: And then I guess one that I'm more familiar with, although it's changed a lot, I feel like in the last few years is LinkedIn. Now there's this Feed and posts, which didn't exist even just a few years ago. I remember when it first came out, I was like, What's this? Is it trying to be Facebook or something? I wasn't sure I understood it.
1: I mean, it's providing content for the professionals. And I think the most powerful thing there is that you can dial into a really specific user base. So if you are a high end winery doing things and you want to target to business people or professionals, like it's a great place to do it. I think the advertising. Threshold is much higher. You have to use a lot more money to play. But the amount of information you can dial in on someone from anything from like this person in this department of this company or to even salary demographics, like there's so much information that you could dial in there that they have organically from just the nature of their platform that other things have to kind of gleam. And so it's really powerful in that regard. So you mean I could get like more wealthy? People,
0: if that's who I'm targeting. If you want to go
1: target Fortune 500 C level staff and name all 500 companies, you can go do that on LinkedIn because they're most likely have a profile. And if you pay the right amount of money, you can even direct message them if you wanted to. Wow. So, what are a
0: few best practices for starting out a brand social presence, a wine brand social presence?
1: So definitely it's something we alluded to earlier, like stake your claim to your social real estate. Like Make sure you have the handle that represents your brand or you as the person that started the brand. And make sure it's consistent as much as possible across the different platforms. And then realize that each platform is slightly different and the content really should be tailored to each platform to be most effective. So just dropping your... Instagram content onto Twitter and onto Facebook is really the like lowest common denominator strategy and not necessarily great. And the same thing would be said for you know picking tra- your videos and just translating them vice versa to YouTube and Instagram. You really should make sure you're surfacing the content that's gonna read the best for that and also understand that the user you may get some users across multiple platforms, but you really want to understand the user base of each of them and what they're responding to and dial that in. And then the ones that you're doing well on, you know, go big on them, and you know, experiment, figure out what's working for each platform, and keep doubling down on that. But don't stop experimenting. So then
0: there's a these very wine-specific social media apps, or some are just websites. Vivino is a big one. I think they've got like four million plus users, and that's to me, it's a little similar to Instagram. You share photos of wine, and but you can sort of rate rate the wines and write a review if you want or a description. I know they're also embedding some seller tracker type functionality so you can keep track of what wines you have and also e-commerce functions so you can actually see where to buy wines or actually buy through that site. And so that seems to have a lot of people on it. I know they've raised quite a bit of money over the last few years. It's not clear to me if they're still burning through money or they're actually making money yet, but I've heard some people use that, mostly people who I'd say were more avid, but less, I guess, professional, if you want to call it that, users of wine or drinkers of wine.
1: Yeah, it's definitely very targeted to the niche of wine. And that's great and all, but you're not going to get that necessarily organic reach. Like in my mind, wine is something that most adults will come encounter with whether they consider themselves a wine aficionado or something like that is a different bar. And I think you have to cross that bar to download a separate app and interact with it. And then I think Vivino where it is really strong is that photo recognition software. Like if you're in the store and you want a quick take of like how people are, being able to scan a bottle and pull it up and be fairly accurate, or then or have a bottle at home and it's like, oh, I just finished this bottle. Work can I buy another bottle? Like those are pretty powerful tools that I mean that are becoming a little bit more common for things like wine search and other places to have as well. So
0: well that's really interesting because I think Delectable was another very similar app to the Vino. And at first it was quite popular and I think their wine recognition both algorithm, but when they didn't recognize it, they had people on staff or outsourced to I think Sommelier's to like write it in. And so it was very quick return. As they, you know, got bigger and bigger, they couldn't outsource that to human people and it took a lot longer for that to get recognized and come back. And I think that kind of was part of the slide down from utilization of that app. People didn't use it, but initially it was very big, especially with wine industry people in Napa and Sonoma. I think it never got enough traction and then it got sold sort of like an asset sale to Venice and it's still around. But I I don't really hear about people using it as much as they used to.
1: Yeah, I haven't played around with Selectable very much. It is something that I thought of it as more of like a storefront for individual wine retailers to be able to look at things. Yeah, I'm not sure what the current strategy is there. I haven't read up on what Venice is doing with it.
0: Then there's seller Tracker, which you know keeps inventory. It's like almost inventory management, or it is inventory management, of your wine cellar, of what you've bought, what you've bought and hasn't even been delivered yet, what you've consumed. You can rate, write reviews, even see what's in other people's cellars. I think it's actually pretty interesting. I did an analysis once for one of the brands I worked for and looked at how much wine was in people's cellars, but then how the different vintages were there and how that changed year to year to give me a proxy or an understanding of how much people were actually drinking of the wine versus soldering it and aging mm. it to just kind of get a sense of okay as how much wine is actually being consumed right so there's interesting data i think that's being collected in Star tracker and i've used it too personally and i think it's useful because you say where it's in there and it's pretty good
1: yeah, I definitely use it as well and look up what people have written. I trust that community more than some of the other communities that you've mentioned.
0: I'm not sure how social it is, and you can't. Re- I don't think you can really do much as a brand in there from no. that perspective. It's more of just a user interaction, user to user interaction with reading some of the reviews and notes. Very kind of old school, interactive, like an old school bulletin board. Is Wine Berserkers, which is heavily catered to wine collectors for the most part, and especially people on like U.S. winery mailing list type systems and a lot of interaction, a lot of banter around what's good, what's hot, what's worth being on, what's kind of passe now from a, a scarcity perspective or what everyone who the insider wants to have for collectible wines, especially domestic collectible wines.
1: Yeah, it's definitely still a thing that's a very small, tight community. That is very vocal. So let's look at how important social media is to a wine brand.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of different I think the key benefits for social media to a wine brand are engaging your customer base, right? You have you have customers, it's a way for you to communicate to them. That's a different fashion from email or phone calls. You can communicate your brand message in a more visual way, in a more frequent way, in a way that's not necessarily they don't view as clutter per se. And you can get sort of real-time interactions and, and chats with them, which can be really beneficial to engaging your customer base. And you can also attract and find new customers as they start to see some of your content, start to understand who your brand is. I think that's another key benefit of social media is, is a way to create awareness and attract brands. And that's, I think, the key to the media part of social media. So there's a few different ways that brands can use social media. The three that I think of as the the three pillars of that social media are your brand page, social media influencers, and also paid advertising. And we're going to do a separate deep dive episode for each of those three pillars just to get better grounding, understanding of it. But Robert, as we start to look at the brand page, what do you think are the key elements of that?
1: So, I mean, defining brand page, I would definitely say it's, let's say what it is, it's a winery or retail, a product page that is the official page that is representing that brand. And I think the purpose of that brand page is to retain existing customers that have used your product and engage with customers that want to potentially use your product or have already used it. And that strong engagement can often lead to retaining and getting the customers to buy your product again. Um, This is an extremely cost-effective way to interact with your community and build responsiveness. And I personally believe that if someone direct messages me, that's much more likely to get a response or if someone's tagged your brand and you see that, then you interact with those that community and you know, reposting their things there's a, is a very strong correlation to like interactions with your end users and your brand just by the way those platforms are set up.
0: So when people message you, if someone emails you, you kind of have A day, maybe to respond to them. Two days
1: is that time frame of response different for social media? For me, it is, and just in terms of the responsiveness, in terms of clearing that out. I mean, there's if you're a brand and you're going to get messaged by people, like they're going to naturally filter some out. So, some are going to come in as requests. Those are maybe a little bit hard to see, but you can filter them into a couple different buckets in terms of like the general or like a specific professional bucket, and then you can respond to them quickly or slowly based on where you have them. And I think that the response time is way faster on a DM than it is on assuming that person's awake or that brand has a representative awake, depending on what time zone, because we are talking about a global audience.
0: Yeah, because when you talk about cost effectiveness, I know some wineries have told me, man, it's a lot of time and effort, which means money for them to manage a brand
1: page well. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the setting up the brand and continuing like it is a constant flow of content and a constant flow of communication. And when you stop that, you know, it becomes not as effective and also not as costly. So if to maintain a high level it depends on how big you are. And it's all relative. Like if you're a major champagne house versus a mom and pop winery in Oregon, like your scale is very different. And then the support you need is very different. And you know, I think it's important to be to understand that your that these platforms will create opportunities to lead to new customers that will engage with your brand. And in order to do that, you have to create content and you have to interact with them. And if you don't want to do either, it's kind of pointless to be on those platforms. So who do you think is doing it well now? Oh, so I mean, defining what well is, is again, really relative. I, I think that the Champagne houses are doing it really, really well in terms of huge numbers, of followers and really polished content in pretty good engagement. And so I think that and those huge budgets ships, and huge budgets, right? Like they're, they're good at marketing. That's kind of what their job is. <laughs> so then you have some other bigger brands like the Schaefer's and the Jordan and the Antonoris and, you know, larger, well-funded wineries that are doing pretty well and have built up a, a good following and good interactions and good content.
0: I do remember Jordan did like a SNL spoof, a Zoom SNL spoof. That was pretty funny.
1: Yeah. I mean, I hope that people start to experiment and figure out what works with their to engage their community. And then this there's small mom and pops. And again, like what might be good for a small mom and pop is, you know, ten to twelve thousand followers that are really engaged and, you know, making sure that when they have their offers that they sell out quickly, like that might be good enough. They don't need to have hundred thousand followers. So,
0: you know, there's brand pages and there might also be the owner for especially the small mom and pop's personal page. How do we think of those differently or how should brands treat them?
1: Yeah, it really varies. I mean, they can be one and the same and I think having multiple... Pages is can be confusing. And I think that you want to put the one that is going to tell the brand messaging to be the star. And so if you look at like Bilikar Salman versus Mr. Bilikar's account, Matthew Roland Bilikar, like his account doesn't have as many followers, but he's out there. And same thing with like Riddell and Max Riddell. Like the Riddell official account is huge, but Max Riddell's account is everywhere. And so, you know, there's a bunch of example. Raj Par, obviously a famous psalm and personality and then then he has rajpar wines and you know he did a really smart thing when we were he was doing a lot of these live streams he was using his rajpar wines account which i think helped grow that following you have michael cruz has more of a following than his cruz wine co does pax wines and pax molly and they're about the same it just it can kind of dilute if you don't convert it into one and i think you have to be careful if you do it so unless you're gonna have very very different content then i think it's okay should people, like
0: what I did when I started my, granted, very limited followership, personal page or brand page, if you will, versus personal, I made the personal one private, uh, so you had to request to follow, versus the other brand one, I guess you call it, is open. Is that one way people could yeah, that's drive one, that's people a- to...
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that someone has to make a request and to follow a private page and you're only going to get the right people or you can only accept the right people if you wanted to. That's definitely not a tactic. I think that uh, the other thing is curating your content. I think if you have a personal page and you're going to have your kids and your pets and all that stuff on there and you're going to have your brand page that's going to have your wine and your business. When you go look at that profile page of a personal versus a brand, you should be able to look at it and understand why the content is different from each other. And having the same content mirrored it doesn't do you any good. Right. That just creates more confusion.
0: And some people have, or some brands, I should say, have multiple pages. You showed me this example of the Melville Winery in Santa Barbara, where they've got a winery page in Lompoc, but then they also have a separate Santa Barbara page, which appears to be their tasting room in Santa Barbara. How should people think about multiple pages?
1: So, I think it's okay to have a separate page if you're going to, again, if you're going to deliver separate content or if they can't get that content easily from. Your page. I think there's other ways to do it than creating another page, but that's just my personal take. I think that I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that you clearly the main Melville Winery page is the star with over 10,000 followers, and that the Santa Barbara tasting room, you know, only has you know less than 2,000. And I think that if you look at the content from Chad, like his, you know, most of his streaming, all that stuff is happening on his main page, and it's archived there. And I think that is clearly the focus. The other one is really just about the tasting room. It's not a bad thing. It's just I, it's hard to grow both at the same time.
0: So, how do we think about followership? you just mentioning that? How do we think about that with a brand page?
1: So, I don't know that it's super important. It's just a number in the end of the day, and there's a lot of ways to fake those numbers if you really, really wanted to. but it, I think it dep- and it really depends on the scale of your business. So again, I think for most small wineries, I think or for any winery, your goal should be to get to that main threshold where to get over 10,000 followers. And once you're at that threshold, you're basically unlocking the privilege to do swipe ups in your stories, which will give you some extra ability to perform more call to actions on different things, whether it's email newsletters or offers and things like that. If you're a well-known brand, you know, getting verified so that you can sort of, uh, and then going after those kind of like knockoff accounts. There's so many wineries that you have to, you see their, their username is actually whatever their winery is slash official or hyphen official. And you're just like, okay, they should have clearly listened to the first point where you're like, go get your real estate early, but also they need to go through the verified step if they're well-known enough to get that verified check mark and then try to try to get their name back that they should be using and so you can actually change the name of your account so you can i don't believe you can merge accounts per se on instagram but you can change the name and rebrand it And, and i think that that is so if you find that you started off as an individual and then you want to make it your brand page you can morph that over time if you wanted to but again for followers i think the most important thing is that you kind of get a really healthy amount for that is relative to your business um, so then, that, that swipe up
0: thing sounds pretty important. You said that's if you have 10,000 followers?
1: Yeah. 10,
0: and is that you can do swipe ups in your post or is that just in stories? Or?
1: Just in stories. But you can, okay. if you pay for a story, you can get a swipe up as well. So if you okay. do a promoted story, you can do swipe ups. So once you pay for advertising, but it's a powerful tool once you're at a certain threshold that you can get as a brand.
0: Cool. And then... How do we think about engagement? Like, I think about this as like likes and comments, but is there something else we should be thinking about?
1: Yeah, again, a lot of this stuff can be faked. So, I mean, I think that. So, if you are doing your job and being a good brand page and people comment on that, you should always be responding to them, no matter what. You should be liking their comment. And responding to them. And if you're not doing that, you're really not engaging that. And so I tend to think of it as like the most rudimentary is, you know, your likes plus your comments divided by your following is kind of like your engagement rate. And like a good number is, you know, if you're one to 3% is kind of like standard average, but if you're like a healthy, it's like three to 5%. And anything above that just like is amazing. And so consistency of content is super important because you're essentially training your audience, what they're going to get from your brand. So if you do something crazy, like you mentioned that SNL skit and you, and you thought that was funny and they're going to be doing that all the time and you came there because of the humor and all of a sudden they're not doing that. It was just a one-off or it was a gimmick or something. Or if you got the, you, got a, you paid a, an influencer to do a, a post and they're, and they're very attractive and then they never see anybody pretty again on any of your posts, and they're like, well, what this, this brand is clearly not about pretty people, so I might unfollow. So you do need to make sure that once you get the followers that you do, engage with them, whether that means responding to their, when anytime they interact with you, or that means creating content that they're going to still engage with. So I need to make sure I only have ugly people on my posts to be consistent with myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that, that, that's one strategy, Peter. <laughs>
0: I guess the other thing you can do with a brand page is have like some sort of call to action, right? Like you can ask people to buy something or provide an offer or something like that.
1: Or join a mailing list. The one thing I want people to take away is that, sure, Instagram's really hot right now, and Twitter was a couple of years ago, and and Twitter's still huge, don't get me wrong. There's going to be new platforms, and it's important to be able to, in order to progress from one to the other and segue from between them, you need to be able to bring, figure out how to transition people from one to the other as new things come online and new customers come online. So pulling things out, I think of as cell phone numbers and email addresses as, you know, like one of the key takeaways that you can be harvesting off of all of these platforms to centralize and start to segment in, on your own back end so that you can make sure when you move to the new one that you, when there's another one that pops up, whether it's TikTok or something else that you are basically saying, hey, everybody, like, well, here's just in case you were interested in, in in our winery on TikTok here is how here's how it is and you message out to them through that, those channels hmm. the migration of the users is quite complicated so using call to actions to pull out or offer things or get them to join your list is is critically important
0: so then the outside of a brand page there's these things that are becoming huge now that we call influencers but they're not i mean i guess famous people are also influencers but then also a set that are In the the traditional way we would consider famous, how do we think about them?
1: Well, so there's clearly the major like online celebrities, these like massive influencers, and then there's these like niche influencers. And I think what we're talking about is really about niche influencers for each demographic or for each niche. And for us, it's wine. And when we're talking about wine influencers, I think that bar is much lower than if we were to talk about cars. So in my mind, if someone's, if you're talking about cars, if they don't have over 100,000 followers, and really good engagement, then they're not real serious. But if you were talking about wine, I think if once you start to get over ten thousand, you're a small influencer, and it can go upwards of you know a hundred thousand or more. And so that's kind of the scale. But following is not the only thing. That's the most obvious metric. You need to make sure that people have. Content that matches what you're trying to do. They have meaningful comments. They have a good number of likes for their followers. Cause you know, honestly, someone could just go buy a bunch of followers and you need to be able to weed that stuff out. And you have to be more savvy as a brand in terms of who you're working with. And you have to look at that person's content. It's like, does my does that match with my brand? And do you think there's different
0: types of wine influencers? Because I see some accounts that are just like bottle shot after bottle shot after bottle shot. Some are bottle shots with people and the same people that are in it all the time or yours are like wine reviews how do we think about the different types of wine influencers
1: yes yeah, so I would consider the ones that are featuring the influencer themselves as lifestyle and so they're you're going to see the people that's like I'm gonna talk about this wine and you know I don't always know that that I think that you're I don't always know that, that the lifestyle influencer is as knowledgeable, but they don't necessarily have to be like they're just there's someone that is charming their own way. And it could be that they're attractive, it could be that they're quirky and funny, like or that they have good recipes. And they also feature wines and a pairing, they have some kind of Something that is more than just wine, and a lot you're starting to see people do like fashion and wine, or cooking and wine, and, and and bringing several things together, and and really diversifying their content. People aren't just one facet. And then you have people who just like to drink really good wine, what I call the collectors, the people who are just you know drinking really amazing old Bordeaux and old Burgundy and posting about them, and often providing really good captions and insights. And you get the people who just take a photo of it and blah, 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 and some hashtags, but they don't actually say anything. And then you get the people who actually take the time and it's like a in-depth seller tracker note about their takeaway and how long they decanted it and blah, blah, blah. And then you get this other group, which really bothers me. It's this curator group where they're basically, they're just stealing everybody else's content. And sometimes they're stealing it and tagging people and sometimes they're not. But they're basically just getting the best wine photos from around the platform or videos and reposting them. And, and I don't really know what the point is of those, uh, except for they're getting followership and good engagement. But I don't know what their end game is per se, because I don't know, because they didn't create that content. I don't know why I would ever as a brand work with them. And then we have educational. I guess I'd consider myself more in the educational. Like I do review wines and I try to put a lot of wine knowledge into those things. And I do interviews with winemakers. And, you know, I do have the WCT diploma. Like there's, a, there's MWs that do a great job at this. There's people even with like WC2 and who just are, have a good way of communicating and kind of make wine less complicated. They're, like educational can take a wide array of levels. It doesn't mean that the people are always, you know, that much knowledge. But it could be that the way that they can communicate around it is very meaningful to people. And I think that that's an important group as well. And then there's that kind of trade group who are people who are clearly in the trade that are in the wine uh, trade. In the, sorry, yeah. The people who are clearly in the wine trade, and this is either their personal account or it's something that they're just like, what are they drinking? And they're kind of like, you know, a lot of, you'll see a lot of Psalms have their own accounts, and there's a lot of Psalms have done a really great job of their, like, they drink a lot of great wines and they post about them. I think that they could do a better job maybe on some of the captions about what they're really tasting, but I think in general, they do a great job of like putting out content that is really relevant to the wine trade.
0: So as a wine brand, whether you're a winery or retailer, or what have you, how do you think about working with some
1: of these influencers? It's a complicated question and it really depends on the brand. I think the first thing is, does the content messaging of that influencer match and align with your brand proposition? Because if you're paying the influencer to say something, that's not really what they're there for, right? You should be Providing them your product, you know, potentially paying them to do a post or a series of posts around your winery. And, you know, talking about your brand points, but it shouldn't be say these five things. It should be you have a conversation with them and they're gonna turn it into their own words. And that way it resonates with their audience. And the other thing is, does it cost you anything to work with them? Are you doing more than just giving them samples? And if so, like how are you gonna calculate that ROI on that? And can that influencer speak to their user base? And is it a match with yours? So, case in point, like I've met people who have a 100% US based following. My following is not. I have a large chunk in the US, but it's really all over the world based on what it is. And I have a very strong European following. And then I, like, can they speak to their demographic? Like, my demographic is like 60% male, 40% female. And then I know the age ranges. Are they fluent enough in that conversation? And how does that line with your current audience? And do those match? And so there's a lot of detective work that you need to do. And then, Understanding getting some data from some of their other content posts, I think is that one of the best ways, but knowing how to read that is important.
0: And so you as the account holder can see your user base and where they're located, where they are. If I'm approaching you, how would I would I just ask you, like, oh, is your there- followers domestic or...
1: Yeah, if you're paying for a post, you could 100% ask for that information. If you are not paying, I think it's a question of, do you line up with the content? And do you, you know, this? it just depends on what the relationship is.
0: Got it. And then there's straight up paying for social advertising. And that's, I think, what like posts and stories or... Like you said, video for YouTube?
1: Yeah, Facebook ads, pre-roll on YouTube, boosting posts, and then promoting stories, which is essentially you know make, taking one of your stories, if not a custom story, and having it go out to other people. When you look at stories versus posts, I think post-boosting is something that you'd really want to do if you want to make sure that your current following sees something, like you have something that's very timely. The reality is, is that for every post you make, only about a third of your following actually sees it because there's so much content out there. So if you want to create awareness... Make sure something gets seen like, hey, I just got featured in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Like, Maybe you want to do that and that will get you, first and foremost, get your current following to see it, but also then start to cast a wider net. I think stories are more powerful because you can do a call to action much easier from that versus a post. So it's like, hey, just swipe up and go to this place to go to this offer or to this mailing list. And it also lets you dial in uh, who you want to be targeting. Not that you can't do that on boosting a post, but a lot of these times when you want to boost something or pay for something, if you really want to do it correctly, you kind of have to get outside the app and go through the Facebook ad manager.
0: And I know you can pay for certain demographics or create lookalikes to drive from. Do you have any thoughts on those?
1: Yeah, so I think demographics are pretty easy to like figure out in terms of hey, I want to target you know these keywords, this gender, this age range, this interest, and then dial that in. I think it's that's the most the easiest way to kind of like experiment and do some testing with a, you know smaller dollar increments to figure out what resonates well, and also make sure that your content is hitting that and responding well. But I think once you ha- if you actually take a, your existing email list. That you think matches to what your Instagram demographic could be, or your Facebook demographic could be, and make a lookalike list based on you know potentially age range there, and then do that. You're gonna it's gonna get even it's gonna be even more exact than using just a high level demographics. Awesome. Again, you have to go outside of the typical app to do that well.
0: Yeah, and so for social, you know, we talked about, and we'll have a, another deep dive episodes on the brand page, influencers, and paid advertising. And social, even though it's relatively new, Instagram was only founded in 2010. You know, that's only a decade old, but it needs to be a key element of any brand, let alone wine brands, branding strategy. Usage keeps growing and, you know, I think it enables awareness for new customers as well as engaging existing ones. So let's talk a little bit about what we think are trends versus fads and wrap up there. Robert, what do you think is a trend versus a fad?
1: Yeah, so I think wineries are going to continue to use influencers, if not use them more. And I think that they will... I think that we're at a peak maybe in terms of number of influencers, but I think that the certain numbers will start to emerge or certain influencers will start to emerge for certain types and targets. And I think that influencers will have to be more savvy and propose and show what their value is for the wineries if they really want to start to charge premiums that they think they're justified. And in terms of fad... I think uh, the like, hey, let's just get together and taste together on a virtual happy hour will start to go away. And some of these virtual things that we're doing right now, it's just, it's a little overplayed already. I think that there will be still curated things that are live from wineries that I think will be relevant. But I think that uh, two influencers getting together to taste a wine or two, I think that's going to go away.
0: Well, I think in terms of trends that people are going to continue to use more data analytics to better utilize social media. I mean, that's one of the huge promises of it being digital. It's no longer, did a billboard or a TV ad and I can't track the attribution and what's actually happening. Now I can actually track that and see what I'm getting out of it and get more targeted with my marketing spend. In terms of fads, I think some of these, some of them, not all, of the wine-specific apps that really overlap in functionality with a lot of the other major social media platforms might struggle to really hit profitability because wine is pretty niche. It would, just like you said, in terms of the influencers for cars, it might be 100000 Wine is 10000 right? You have that sort of scale in terms of the number of followers and applicability and, and markets. So I think it's just not a big enough industry, perhaps, to support some of these plays.
1: Well, I hope based on this overview, you're less of a social media noob now, Peter. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. All right, everybody. Well, this is going to wrap for this episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.